As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And welcome back to another episode of Minority Reports podcast and digital series. I am your host, Mona Shake. Very excited to be here. My eye makeup, I kind of went a little overboard today, but I like it. I kind of like, because I'm home all day, I have zero interaction with human beings. This is what I do to make myself happy, you guys. Just, just lather on just a bunch of makeup just to make myself happy. Okay? This is what I do. You guys. Today, um, today's topic is probably the touchiest topic that I've ever wanting to delve into or even explore, uh, mainly because I wanted to at first wanted to educate myself and not just kind of jump in and start running my mouth. Um, and so in order to really understand, because, you know, it's like as a kid and just growing up, even in Pakistan and even the U.S., you hear so much about the Israel and Palestinian conflict, but you never really got the opportunity, especially being somebody, you know, who is not from the region, um, that you actually just kind of, you know, you hear so many things, uh, you know, in the news, but you never really get a chance to uh, get like uh, boots on the ground kind of that um, uh, perspective. Uh, and I really wanted to invite someone today uh who uh, you know who was born in jersey my old hood and now resides in israel and i wanted to hear his point of view um and i i do want to uh, say this disclaimer this is a super awesome loving a uh, progressive uh you know just a fantastic conversation that i'm really looking forward to uh and without further ado i'm going to invite my guest adar weinrub Adar, good day. Welcome, my friend. How are you? Mona, what's up? How are you? I'm good, thank you. I know it's 4 o'clock in the morning, man, so thank you so much for doing this. 4.17 a.m., going strong, all good. It's a pleasure to be here. This is so great. I, it's, so, it's so nice to see you. How was, uh, did you chug a bunch of coffee, or are you just, uh, is that the sativa talk? Um... I'd say, you know, I don't drink coffee. Caffeine doesn't do me well. I, I took a shower to get my energy going, did a few jumping jacks. I'm not high yet. Yeah. I normally wait till Thursday. The weekend here in Israel starts on Thursday. Right. That's when I start smoking. Um, I smoked a little bit earlier, but decided to at least start the episode in a clear head. But I might have a joint a little bit later. 
Please. Um, I have my own YouTube channel. I haven't done any high lives there. So you're taking my high live virginity. Oh, and wow. Look that's at that. a pleasure. Yeah. Listen, it's, uh, it won't be the first or the last time a Muslim takes a, you know, a Jewish person virginity and vice versa. So, hey, why not? I mean, I'd say that's one way to make peace. <laughs> that is absolutely. Listen, uh, uh, you know, uh, sex always or like popping cherries is always the best way to make peace. So I'm all about that life, you know. Amen, sister. Amen. I'm all about that life. So, Adar, before we delve into, um, I was going and uh, reading up and doing my research, and I wanted to really kind of educate myself on the Israel-Palestinian conflict and how it started. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who are not from the region like myself are somehow under the impression that this has been going out going on for thousands of years, which is completely false. Uh, so I definitely got educated, educated myself on that. But I want to kind of tell the audience about what your background is and uh, why, you know, and, and just the podcast that you do, which is incredibly progressive, where you bring in young folks from both the Israeli side and from the Palestinian side to have a, a, a very, uh, I would say, a fruitful conversation about what, 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 what's going to happen in the future. So can you give us a, a little bit kind of a background about, you know, what you do and uh, what you're, you know, wh- why are you so heavily involved in this? Yeah, sure. First of all, you know, I'm looking at your video quality compared to mine and it makes me jealous. I just ordered a webcam. So hopefully the next time we go live together, I'll yeah. look almost as good and crisp as you, but I'm sorry that it is a little fuzzy right now it's okay it'll clear up as it goes along it clears up so you know i i as you mentioned i I wasn't born in new jersey i'd like to mention i was born in new york it gives me a little more street cred because new jersey doesn't have a great reputation but i I did grow up in new jersey the armpit of america i grew up there um i thought florida was the armpit but eh, maybe there's a few armpits you know um and that said, although I grew up in New Jersey, you know, my, my most of my family is Israeli and uh, I'm, I'm in fact considered 10th generation Israeli, which means my family moved here in 1812, which is around 150 years before the creation of the state of Israel and before the Israeli-Palestinian conflict began. I was raised with deep Zionist teachings. Now, the term Zionism in itself creates confusion. There's two vastly definitions of Zionism, one held by Zionists, which just means believing that Jews have the right to self-determination on their ancestral homeland. Mm -hmm. Uh, But those who oppose Zionism give it a slightly different definition. They view Zionism as akin to Jewish supremacy of sorts. It's about, they they see Zionism as a more of a colonialist mentality, not not self-determination on one's ancestral homeland. Um, and, and this is important to clarify, because if, if you want to talk to somebody on the opposing side and your version of Zionism is so vastly different from how that, you know, a Zionist would identify as, then you, you're starting at a conversation from such a place of misunderstanding that it's very hard to build common ground from from that point. So my, my deep Zionist teachings had nothing to do with uh, Jewish supremacy or colonialism. It was simply the stories of the Jewish people, mm-hmm. um, how we were exiled from the land of Israel 2,000 years ago by the Romans. And we spent the past 2,000 years in exile in Europe and around the world. Um, and we had a 
many challenges in those 2000 years. We were persecuted. We were chased from country to country. We had a Holocaust that wiped out around half our population. And after 2000 years, we finally returned to our ancestral homeland. Um, it's, a, it's a story with almost a beautiful ending, but the, the story continues that we returned home after 2000 years. And then there's this other group of people, the Palestinians, who refused to let us to live in our ancestral homeland. This is uh, essentially, you know, it's it's a very common narrative that many Israelis will will be raised on and many just Jewish Zionists around the world. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it's false, right? Everything I just said is true. It's historically true. It's factually true. The thing is, it it only accounts for one narrative. It accounts for the Israeli narrative. It's mm-hmm. about our return mm-hmm. to the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make much mention of the inhabitants of this land when we returned and how our return affected them. Mm-hmm. That, that to us is often just explained as they refuse to let us live here, so they will continue to fight us. If you look at it from a, a Palestinian narrative, for them, yeah. it is a story of colonialism. Right. They're a population that's been living on a piece of land for many generations, many generations. And then come people who who are lighter skinned and they, they look quite European. Yes. Um, although, you know, g- genetically, if you if you look at, you know, the genetics of the European Jews, um, Ashkenazi Jews, who were the were the ones who began the Zionist movement at the beginning of at the end of the 20th century, uh, 19th century, sorry. Yeah. Um, their, their DNA is actually traced back to the Middle East uh, thousands of years ago. So it's, it's not quite Europeans, but they are lighter skinned. So there's the story of colonialism, of these people coming in, colonizing the land. It's quite easy to understand why Palestinians would view uh, Israelis as colonialists because from their perspective it it looks very similar there is i would say two main differences one we're not a colony of any host nation right nobody sent us here to extract the resources and and bring it back to a host nation which is essentially what colonialism is but also there's the aspect of you know we're we're an indigenous people returning Mm -hmm. so while the term colonialist isn't quite accurate, it's still easy to understand why that is how we're viewed to the Palestinians. Now, these two narratives are vastly different, mm-hmm. right? So we, we have a conflict, potentially the most complex conflict uh, in history, yes. and it's one that involves differing histories, cultures, religions, yes. and narratives. Now, uh, things like religion and history, we can't we can't change or expect people to change, but narratives is something that we could work to unify. And I, I think that's really should be, you know, w- one of the foundations of how we approach peacemaking is, is working yep. on taking these two distinct narratives and building one unified narrative. Right. Right. Absolutely. Uh, that was a fantastic intro, Adar. So thank you. Thank Thanks. you so very much for that. I want to talk about the word Zionist. Okay. So it's uh, that, that, you know, it's interesting because, Whenever I have conversations here with uh, a fellow uh, Palestinian or even a fellow Arab, 
uh, friend. And uh, the word Zionist or Zionism has a very demeaning uh, or it has a very kind of an extremist uh, point of view attached to it. It's like, oh, you know, uh, some people say, you know, don't confuse Jews with Zionists, right? Uh, like, uh, just like don't confuse right. Islamic terrorists with Muslims. Uh, and, you know, those comparisons are made. But I'm listening to you and I'm listening to where the origin of the word was um, and what, you know, and what, what the perception of it has become is that, is that me? Is that just that that word is basically been? I guess the perception on it has changed, not from the Israeli side, of course, from like the Arab uh, side. Is mainly because that's because of the conflict that has come into place. Is you know, is that like an accurate statement to make? Yeah, yeah, I would say you know that that new definition of Zionism is, is certainly a result of Zionism creating a struggle between two populations. So yeah, if, you know, if Zionism was returning to land that no one inhabited, inhabited, it, it would remain, you know, uh, a non-offensive term that just means the right for Jewish self-determination on their ancestral homeland. The, what you mentioned, you know, people say, I don't have a problem with Jews. It's Zionists. You know, that, that's a way to kind of separate anti-Semitism from anti-Zionism. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's essentially what they're doing. They're trying to say, I don't have a problem with Jews. I have a problem with Zionists, but there's a strong claim to be made that to be anti-Zionist is to be anti-Semitic. And, mm -hmm. and I'm not, I'm not making this claim, but I, I think it's, mm -hmm. a, it, it's, it's strong enough that I could present it. Most, most, it's widely agreed upon that most people do deserve a, a homeland, right? No one's going to tell Germans that they don't deserve Germany or French people that they don't deserve France or Americans that they don't deserve America. So it's viewed as a great double standard to be anti-Zionist is essentially to tell Jews that they don't deserve a homeland while all other populations do. So that in itself is a... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's it's a double standard. It's it's holding Jews to a different standard than you're holding many other people. Mm -hmm. Now, 
you know, the claim could be made. Yeah, but, you know, Zionism caused the suffering of Palestinians. So how can I support that? And, and that's legitimate, right? But, but it's two separate things. So we, we could support Zionism. We could support Jews having self-determination, but also be against inequality, oppression, any form of violence, right? These things are, they're not, they're not mutually exclusive, right? So we, we, we could hold both these views and looking at the injustice that was created when a nation was born to justify whether that nation is legitimate is also a double standard because most nations were born through bloodshed, right? Unfortunately, it it shouldn't have been the case, but that is the reality. Yes. So again, uh, often anti-Zionism is viewed as a very strong double standard. It's saying other nations can have a homeland, Jews cannot. Often the reason is because it created, it caused, it, it caused harm to another population, but that's not inconsistent with how many other nations were born. So the claim is hold Jews to the same standard as all other nations. And if all other nations deserve a homeland, then so do the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, um, I mean, I was, um, you know, I was looking at like just the history of it, right. About like how in the early 1900s, uh, you know, in the first decade of the 1900s, the European Jews were arriving in what was back then known as British Palestine, which is, uh, which brings me to the point about how whenever the British show up anywhere, they destroy that region. Uh, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that also goes to my background of being Pakistani and what they did to India, right? India was this massive country, uh, and then the British came and fucked the whole thing up, uh, as they, I believe, that they have done in the Middle East. I mean, literally, they just kind of created this mess and we're like, we're out of here. Okay. See ya. Have a good time. Um, and now, uh, you know, there, there are two groups of people who are just in direct conflict with each other, which really is heartbreaking. Um, but, um, you know, um, I was reading about how the, uh, British were limiting Jewish migration in the 1930s in response to, uh, Jewish militias being formed because they were fighting, fighting at the time, both Arabs and the British. Um, like, did you have family members? I mean, because you're saying your family's been there since like the late 1800s. Did you have family members who like, you know, who were part of this, you know, possibly this this uh, militia? Or the, you, did you ha- do you have his stories, stories like that? Because I love stories like that. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I had any family members in any militias. I, I do know that my, my family was here at the time. There's no stories that I know of, but I did have family members who have fought in just about every single war Israel has fought since its creation. And um, my my grandma, for example, was in Jerusalem when it was surrounded in 1948. And she there was there was a siege on Jerusalem. And she I, I remember her stories of saying she she had a very little food she would eat bread dipped in olive oil that was her food for for a few months i believe it was which is interesting because my other grandma who is not israeli i heard stories of her also starving as a child because she's a holocaust survivor so it's interesting that you know on both my grandparents sides um 
there's deep trauma from, from a young age. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think this is an important point because tra- trauma is multi-generational. It, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it passes through our DNA. And, you know, Jews have very deep rooted trauma because of what we faced in Europe with the Holocaust and prior and which, which has been reinforced through wars and terror attacks that we experience and Palestinians as well, you know, have deep trauma from their very harsh reality for the past 70 plus years. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it creates an even greater challenge because the, the people here living here are not, you know, we're, we're living here. We're the best people to solve the conflict because we have the most to gain from peace and the most to lose from war. But that being said, you know, many view it through a lens of trauma, which does not always give you the clearest sight as to what the solution is. Right. So it's, it's a challenge because no one knows what it's like to be an Israeli better than an Israeli. No one knows what it's like better than a Palestinian than a Palestinian, but sometimes there might be benefit from somebody who can take a step back and look at it more objectively. Mm. They may find clarity that people who are so close to the conflict may not, may not find. And this is actually, I view this as a challenge in social justice causes in general. Mm -hmm. Let's take, you know, let's take a a controversial topic. Let's take the the BLM uh, movement and Mm -hmm. not to confuse it organization because I know there's immense critique over the organization but the movement is a quite global movement for uh, racial justice yes you know similar to this many many black Americans have trauma from what they've experienced similarly the the claim could be made that and and there's a great sensitivity and rightfully so for non non non-black people to comment on the issues of black people right that that often creates some kind of a, a trigger and rightfully so nobody wants to hear what outsiders, how outsiders think you should sure. view how you should solve your conflict. That's but right. w- with the same logic to the Israeli Palestinian conflict, I actually view it as quite similar that I think people who themselves might not be um, uh, currently oppressed and have faced certain injustices that many black Americans have faced might have a, a, a level of clarity being one step back from the conflict. Now, I, I use this as an example. I, I realize that these words may be extremely triggering to some people to hear because I'm, you know, I'm essentially saying that people closest to the conflict might not be best to solve this, but I, I reached this conclusion being an insider of a conflict and seeing how many of my brothers and my Israeli and Palestinian brothers and sisters don't always have the cleanest approach because of how close they are to the conflict. Sure, sure. I mean, mainly because... Just like you said, I mean, there's so much trauma on both sides that they're both kind of coming from a place of pain, right? It's like saying one party is saying, well, I'm in pain. And the other party is like, well, but I'm in pain, too, you know, and my pain is bigger than your pain. It's like, no, 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 my pain is big. And it's like it kind of becomes like this kind of whose pain is bigger. I can only understand it from, I guess I can relate to it from the whole India, Pakistan side. That's right. You rolled that joint up. Um, you know, I yeah, I kind of approach it from the India Pakistan side, where you know, um, I mean, look, so many of the Indians that I meet in in America, they're just like, dude, this is nonsense. We're all exactly the same people. I'm not gonna fight over. But there are others on both sides that are like, no, 
they did wrong to us. And the one side is like, they did wrong to us. And it's like, dude, somebody, just like you said, needs to take a step back and be like, how do we look at the bigger picture? This, this is not sustainable, right? These ongoing battles, these ongoing fights, these ongoing putting up the walls, oh, Israel doesn't have the right to exist or Palestine doesn't have the right to exist. That's in the long run just doesn't work. It just right. doesn't. You have to find some kind of peace. I was listening to the UAE uh, uh, chief deputy uh, because he was talking about the recent uh, Israel-UAE uh, you know, deal that went down. And I was listening to him and he said something that I really agree uh, with uh, the kind of stuff that comes out of the uh, mouth of the Khaliji officials. Uh, but I agree with him. You know, he said Iran has Iran keeps saying death to Israel, death to America. Right. But that is not the way of the future. Like you can't be neighbors or you can't like constantly wishing death upon something that because just because you don't like them because of whatever your personal fucking reasons are because your country is ran by a bunch of extreme mullahs, right? Like you can't right. come from that point of view. I mean, same goes for Palestine. I am a big believer of a two state solution. I believe that both parties have the right to coexist. Um, also, I think for me, the one thing that I always find it quite amusing is that, um, uh, is so much of Islam and so much of what uh, Islamic preachings are comes from Judaism. I mean, so much of the stuff as Muslims that we practice comes from Judaism. So it's fascinating to me that people who are so similar, uh, not just religiously, but also I feel culturally, you know, would have such great conflict. But again, I can relate to it going back to being, you know, to the India and Pakistan right. thing, where it's just like, you guys are the same freaking people. It's like saying Advil and ibuprofen. Same shit. Stop it. Stop the fight. Like, it's not necessary, right? Uh, but I feel like India-Pakistan has a complex history, but I feel like Israel and Palestine has even a deeper complex history. It's like, it, it is probably the most complex thing that is, I would say, right now in the world, besides mm -hmm. America being the second one, uh, uh, given the current uh, president that we're facing. The American um, quagmire, yeah. Yeah, That's American quagmire, indeed. I mean, we are in, in deep shit. Um, but, you know, you were talking about uh, your, your grandmother uh, being a Holocaust survivor, and I've met uh, a few Holocaust survivors here, and they're stories are uh just uh heartbreaking and uh, uh one of like just su such courage uh you know i had never met a jewish person till i was uh i don't know uh 18 19 years old never met a jewish person in my life right um and this is a this is a true story okay uh in pakistan we don't have we have a handful of jews actually we have a big Jewish cemetery from the very city that I come from, Karachi, because at one point there were Jews who resided in that uh, part of the city. And we have a Jewish cemetery. Um, and one of the things that I was kind of raised around was like these Jews. And I was like, who are these Jews? I've never met a Jewish person in my life. I don't know what that culture is about. How can you point a finger at something or someone that you've never met? How do you come up with that? Like that, it's stupid. It's so, it's so ignorant, right? And when I moved here, I met the first Jewish person I ever met was a Russian Jewish girl. And she was amazing, right? I met her. She was beautiful, so kind. So, and I was like, 
what what are you? I was like, are you Christian? Like, she's like, no, I'm Jewish. And I was like, tell me more. Like, tell me, I want to know everything about it. And some of my dearest friends now are Jews, which is quite fascinating. Um, I have Arab friends too, and I have Jewish friends uh, because I'm somebody that likes to be friends with everyone and I want to know uh, everything about their culture. But I want to go back to the history of Holocaust and what was happening. Um, so um, I was reading up about how around when, it, when the Holocaust was happening that, of course, uh, you know, European Jews were fleeing um, and they were heading over to, uh, you know, what, what is now uh, Israel and, and, you know, what was Palestine at the moment. Uh, and the United Nations, of course, devised a plan that they wanted to form a Palestinian state and an Israeli state. Do you think... Um, uh, you know, I know the United Nations stepped in, but I, I want to go back to total basic. Do you think the British fucked up? As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So that's a good question. Before I get to that, I just want to wrap up the last topic because it's a sensitive topic and and it is... um, likely to create some some amount of um, confusion yeah. and even trigger. So I, I just want to wrap it up on the issue of outsiders potentially having an important perspective. Yeah. So the, the, the approach to this, because it's not that outsiders should decide the fate of people struggling. It's about a coalition between people struggling and yeah. those who genuinely care about their struggle. It's about a partnership and a collaboration. So I, I, just, I just want to make that clear. Okay. I, you know, I do genuinely think that people who are a step back from a conflict have perspective that those in a conflict do not have. But that doesn't mean it's for them to decide the fate of those people. It's a cooperation. One is living it. One has the most to gain and lose. And the other may have perspective given their, their vantage point here. So I just wanted to sum right. that up. because I think it's an important point. Do I think the British fucked up? I, I do. I'm, I'm not a huge, I'm not huge on history. Yeah. And the reason I'm not huge on history is because I think that it's immutable, right? We can't, we cannot change history. Yeah. I'm, I'm more focused on the ideas for what we need to do given our present situation 
to, yeah. to solve the conflict. Sure. That being said, from what I do know about the history, I think the British uh, fucked up in many ways. Yeah. They, they were all about control, and part of control was divide and conquer. Sure. So the land of Israel, before it was promised to the Jews by the British in the Balfour Declaration, they promised it also to the Palestinians, and I believe they also promised it to the French, right? It was to, it was to make everybody happy. And, you know, if we look at the borders of the Middle East and of Africa, it's, it's borders that were drawn up by, by the British based off um, not cultural lines, ethnic lines, um, often control populations and extract resources uh, from those countries. And that creates a whole bunch of turmoil, turmoil, right? You could have one country, uh, uh, a border splitting between one population mm-hmm. and putting that population in a country with another population. That creates sectarian violence. So uh, this is more of a, of, a, of a broader overlook of how British, um, British imperialism has um, messed up both the Middle East and Africa. And some, something similar did happen here in Israel with making promises, deciding borders. It, you know, it, it just, it, it doesn't work. It didn't work. Yep. Can I say that there wouldn't be a conflict if it wasn't for the British? No, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that's the case. I think that I can understand why Jews uh, wanted to return. Um, it's, it's similar to why any indigenous people would want to return for 2,000 years in Jews' daily prayer, they, they mention returning to Jerusalem, yeah. returning to the Holy Land. Um, so th- that's, you know, there's, there's the, there's wanting to return from a religious perspective, from, uh, and fr- from just a, from, from the indigenous, um, the, the indigenous perspective as well. Yeah. And I think that returning to a land after so long when there's another population already inhabiting this land is is going to create conflict. Sure. Um, also, M- Middle Eastern mentality is very tough. It, it involves a lot of honor. And, and I think honor culture is important. If we want to understand the conflict, we need to understand, as I mentioned, not only narratives and um, trauma, but also the, the culture of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the biggest... One of the biggest um, criticisms and concerns many Israelis have over Palestinians is their unwillingness to compromise. If you speak to most Israelis, they will mention, we, you know, we've tried to make peace. And, and I think that this is an interesting duality, right? So, so there, there's, an in, there's a huge imbalance of power between Israelis and Palestinians. But there seems to be an imbalance in, of intent the other, the, looking the other way. So Israelis will often, you know, point to many instances where they've been very willing to live side by side with Palestinians and Palestinians having a state. And then there's been rejection after rejection after rejection and an intent to destroy Israel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some, you know, people who take a pro-Israel stance will say, look, you know, the Israelis have been willing to compromise. Palestinians haven't. Palestinians have um, you know, indiscriminately been trying to kill people and do whatever they can to destroy Israel. If the Jews wanted to do the same to Palestinians, they have the power to do so and they haven't. So this is like a very, you know, pro-Israel way, way to look at it that they want to kill us. 
we just want to live here side by side and we're we're willing to accept them here. The Palestinian mm-hmm. side would be like, they have all the power, they are in control, they are responsible for our suffering. Yeah. These are both accurate claims, right? They're not contradictory. It's just we need to, part of building the unified narrative is accepting um, both of these claims. Yeah. But if we look at, um, you know, if we want to understand one of the reasons why it's um, Palestinians have been, uh, it's been hard to find a compromise with them is because of honor culture that is prevalent in the, in the Middle East. You know, Palestinians have been um, killed and persecuted and humiliated by Israelis. So it's not just about, there's, there's a deep sense of, of needing of, of justice and that justice, you know, it, takes the form of re- revenge in many Palestinians and, and any compromise is compromising with someone who created a massive injustice. And, and I think the amount of honor that exists um, in many Middle Eastern cultures makes it harder to find that compromise. So I think that's also an important aspect to, to understand if, if we want to understand the dynamics of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, So you you asked me about the British and we ended with honor culture. I don't know if if that it might have been the joint or it might have made perfect sense how we got there. But, you know, I, I, you know, they have a song called I blame it on the alcohol. I say you blame it on the joint. Uh, That's a new song that I'm going to come up with. Look, you are way less likely to do stupid shit when you're high than when you're drunk. Those are facts. If we look back at our worst moments, the moments we regret the most, yeah, it seems like a fair amount of them We're, involve alcohol. Very yeah. few of them involve weed. Uh, Very few, at I least think, for me. I think mine are usually uh, being sober uh, and dating losers. I think that's uh, okay. Yeah, that nothing fair. to do with alcohol or weed, for that matter. I wish I could blame it on either one, uh, but that is not my story uh sadly i wish i did um i um no i uh i i feel um i I mean i agree with you about the fact that you know it's not even so much about like you know um kind of thinking about the history but more about how where do we go from here like what happens now you know um i was reading about about uh one of the uh prime ministers um of israel who was uh assassinated um uh do you know who I'm talking about right um uh our pri- uh, sorry uh, not the, not the uh, uh, yeah was wasn't it a uh, um israeli uh israeli prime minister who wanted to make peace and um, and then yeah. assassinated yeah the closest we ever were to peace was um in the early 90s uh, again i'm not as coherent when it comes to history it's just not I haven't studied this as extensively, but yeah. it was the Oslo Agreement. That's it was the closest we've ever been to peace, yes. both Israelis and Palestinians. Yes, it seems like the majority. I don't have the number, but I think on the Israeli side, it was certainly the majority felt like peace was close. Yes, uh, Itzhak Rabin, the prime minister at the time, was assassinated by a far right Israeli who uh, assassinated him because he was willing to. Compromise, and we actually spoke about compromise. So we we see yeah. an unwilling to compromise on yes. both sides. But yes. any that you know is it the the far 
right Israeli who killed Rabin mm-hmm. views every inch of this land as Jewish land by, by, by God's word and backed by history. Right. Um, and, they, and they believe, and, and, and there are a fair amount of Israelis who have this belief. It's not an uncommon view in Israel. Yeah. Most of them are not radical enough to kill a prime minister, sure. but at least one was, and the prime minister was killed and that did derail the peace process. Right. Um, can I say confidently that there would have been peace had he not been assassinated? No. Mm. Uh, you know, this is a challenging one, but. Why do you say that? Because, you know, we've been close and it's, it's, it's so complex. I mean, there's just, there's, we're, we're still living amongst each other. There wasn't a full agreement, you know, Yes. um, Jerusalem was, was still ours. Um, The Palestinians who were kicked out of their homes in 48, tens of thousands of them would not have the right to return to their home, to, to their homeland. So, so these things were not part of the deal. Um, is, you know, Israelis saw it as, as fair enough. Many Israelis supported, but I think many Palestinians did not, were not so happy with this deal because it didn't give, you know, many of them the right to return back home. Many saw it as uh, too much of a compromise with your mortal en- enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jerusalem would still be under the control of Jews. So, I'm I'm not super optimistic had Robin still been alive that it or had he not been assassinated that it would have worked because there's still a large group of Palestinians and as we see a fair amount of Israelis that were not on board and yeah. it's quite possible they would have been able to disrupt the pe- the peace agreement happening which did happen it was disrupted um and I think it could have been disrupted in other ways had it not happened this way so you're saying even if it went through, it still wouldn't have been able to maintain, sustain the peace that, you know. Yeah, look, let, I mean, let me give you a clear example. Uh, the, the, the deal could have been signed and then there could have been um, violence. You know, the next day we could see terrorist attacks in Tel Aviv. And, and you, you know, there were there were um, following the Oslo courts, following um, Robin getting assassinated. Israel uh, saw a wave of, of terror attacks mm-hmm. and uh, was, I, again, I, I don't want to get facts wrong. So I'm going to stay, you know, uh, vague on the facts. I don't know, but so, so let's, let's imagine a situation terror attacks begin because some amount of Palestinians are not on board with the, with the deal. Well, Israel would, would respond with potentially then taking the deal off the table or increasing security or, or as a, you know, it, you know, Israel has very methodically, you know, found ways to take more and more land. Right. The sure. the military occupation the Palestinians live under is is quite horrible uh, for the Palestinians. And often a lot of, you know, that has been justified as a retaliation or as um, a consequence of continued terror attacks. So mm-hmm. that, that's just one example. Had some group of population not agreed to it, they could have responded in violence. That violence would have just could have collapsed um, the, the agreement. So it, it seems in order to find peace, it's not only about the, the nations, the governments finding peace, it's about enough of both populations agreeing. Right. That's right. That's and, right. and if enough of both populations don't agree, it seems like they have the ability 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply to stop a peace agreement in its tracks. Sure. So it's, it, it's not just governments agreeing there needs to be true social change. Um, there, there needs to be uh, a new unified narrative. And that's, and that's really what it's all about. Having the, the narrative and the plight of the Palestinian people mm-hmm. um, be understood clearly by all Israelis yeah. um, and, and vice versa. Have Palestinians understand the Jewish connection to this land and our difficult history that eventually led us back here. Yes. Um, it, it's about uh, Israelis learning Arabic and Palestinians learning Hebrew. Ooh. It's about having some kind of reconciliation process, which, which probably, and reconciliation is, I think is a concept that's not discussed enough in conflict re- uh, resolution. I think also if, if we look, if, if we go back again to the issue um of racial justice in the United States. I think reconciliation is extremely important there and it's not, not mentioned quite enough, but reconciliation is certainly needed here. And, you know, that could involve a, just a mutual recognition of each other's narratives, a mutual recognition and apology for the pain we have created each other, not individual pain, right? You know, individuals refuse to accept that they are guilty. Most Israelis have not personally harmed a single Palestinian and vice versa. Sure. But our nations caused harm to one another yeah. and having the nation be able to apologize to one another, you know, se- seems like it would have immense uh, he- healing. healing capabilities. Yeah. So, so yeah. reconciliation is important and, and probably some kind of a national holiday where we celebrate our unity yes. uh, together, where we celebrate our love for the land together. And um, yeah, I mean, I'd say that those are some, a few good steps to reconciliation. You know, I'm just one guy. I think that one of the greatest shames I see is that we have so many resources on this land, so many brilliant minds, both Israelis and Palestinians. And it seems like the majority of the focus um, goes in the wrong directions, right? you, You we're spending a fraction of the energy thinking of ideas for peace and connection and, and what a comprehensive and empowering reconciliation process would look like, right? These aren't the conversations happening. It's talking about how we could have better weapons, better defense, better strategy. That's, that's where so much of our people's energy is going. And it's really a shame. So, you know, part of my work as an activist is to try to build this unified narrative, try to get people's energies away from militarism and division and fighting and over to um, 
unification and reconciliation. So that, that's really what I'm trying to focus on. Uh, I, I think, uh, honestly, it's so uh, commendable uh, what you're doing uh, in your activism work. And uh, to even sit here and have this conversation, I feel it takes a very evolved human being, a very uh, compassionate human being to sit down and be like, okay, um, I know we, I can talk about my pain, but let me step outside of my pain and let me, let me hear the other person out. Right. Let me see what they're experiencing, because I was watching some of your podcasts and your episodes uh, because you just, uh, interviewed Noam Chomsky the other day, which is amazing. Um, and um, yeah, that was fun. He's, he's fantastic. Um, and, um, I, I, you know, I, I was listening to it and I was just like, wow, you really bring on like young people from both sides. You want to bring on because. I mean, if you really look at it, it is really the young people who would lead us to peace and progress and come to table and have reconciliation, which is the conversation uh, we just had. Um, do you feel, Adar, like this, uh, this, this, you know, this narrative that you're, ooh, your AC's not working? Yeah, it's, it's on heat. I'm wondering why I'm hot and. Yep. No, I'm with you, though. I'm with you. Um, is your. The, con the kind of conversation we're having right now, your narrative and about like bringing both parties to the table and having some kind of reconciliation and understanding what it's like to be like the other. Is that a popular narrative in Israel? What is that like? Are you frowned upon when you bring it up? What is that like, uh, you know, in among the Israeli folks? Yes. Yeah, so there is not a great conversation on this. Um, it's not taught in our schools. It's not part of it, it's not part of Israeli culture to have this conversation. There is no pride in being a peacemaker the way there is pride in being a soldier. Not even close. And I think I think a sign of us being in the right direction or a sign of us being close to achieving peace is in, is when that flips and when they, and when we view those who are working to make peace as heroes, today they are by and large either ignored or ridiculed to some extent. People just think it's naive. You know, there's there's a very, there's a, a, a great pessimism on both sides. I think so, it's something like only 11% of Palestinians think peace will be attained in the next hundred years. And I think it's only, uh, 20% of Israel is something along those lines. Wow. So, you know, that's a sign of deep despair and despair, you know, breeds violence and hate. Um, yeah. So yeah, is, Israelis are viewed as naive. Um, the more extreme people will view them as um, naive by who? Well, uh, amongst Israelis, um, it, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for, for an is, you know, for an Israeli to think the work I do is naive. And, you know, they, they might be right. You know, I'm, I'm just a dude trying to trying to make peace. Um, my, my approach to peacemaking is not I'm going to bring peace to this land. Not at all. I think that's a problematic approach. If activists take a because you, you give yourself a little bit too much importance, but also then you're very likely to be let down. For me, activism is just every individual doing their small part and making a difference. And if we all take that approach, then we will make a difference. So that, that's really what it's all about. But. Israelis, many Israelis think it's naive. Uh, peacemakers are, are ridiculed. 
in, in Palestinian uh, society, it's, it's a little bit more challenging and the stakes are a little bit higher. There, because of the power dynamic, there's a very strong anti-normalization movement. And essentially what normaliza- anti-normalization is, it's, it's saying you do not normalize ties with your enemy. You do not normalize ties with your oppressor. That's essentially what anti-normalization is. And that, you know, makes a lot of sense. It's like, why, why normalize ties with somebody who is causing you so much harm? It's almost like accepting the harm they are causing you. That being said, because we've identified that, you know, a great part of this conflict is our inability to understand each other's narrative that it seems like some level of normalization is essential. The, yeah. the, the path to peace is paved through the humanization of the other. Yeah. So we, we, need, we need to have a, some amount of normalization because without that, we can't get to know one another. We can't build a unified narrative. Yeah. But that, that said, anti-normalization is very strong amongst Palestinian society. And there, peacemakers have a much greater threat than being ridiculed or, or considering themselves naive, um, they are sometimes in danger of their neighbors and their own government. The Palestinian Authority arrests peace activists and locks them up for normalizing. What? Normalizers are interrogated and locked up. If you are yet, yeah, I actually tonight, I was in an, an awesome meeting done by an organization called The Home. They're trying it's it's an organization trying to work on a unified narrative. And it was a group of 10 Palestinians, eight Israelis. We met in the West Bank in Area C, and we had a great conversation, um, you know, about, and we had obviously disagreements, but just a, a great conversation to, to build more common ground and to see what we can do to really inspire our communities sure. to, to join this movement. Sure. And, um, we took a picture at the end, we uploaded it, but every Palestinian aside from one has their face blurred because they requested and they have their face blurred because that's how high the stakes are for them. Wow. For Palestinians in Gaza, it's even worse. In Gaza, Hamas is in control right. and they're a bit more extreme than, than the Palestinian Authority is, even though neither of them, I think, in their current state can be viewed as a legitimate partner for peace. Yeah. Nor, nor, nor do I consider the Israeli government currently a legitimate partner for peace, given, given their policies and, you know, how, how they've behaved the past um, probably decade or so, maybe even more. Um, so the people sitting in power, sorry, Adar. So the wait, people sitting in okay, power okay, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. are just not willing to come to the table and have any kind of conversation. Like, first of all, there's a massive communication breakdown, right? That has been, that mm-hmm. communication breakdown has been there for years and years. And then on top of that, um, you know, uh, Hamas is, of course, you know, that that is all, definitely sits on the extreme side. And uh, then the, there's the Palestinian Authority, which I thought I was somehow under the understanding that the Palestinian Authority would at least try to come to the table and create some kind of narrative or some kind of conversation where it's not so full of conflict. But it sounds like that's not the case at all. Mona. <laughs> 
I lost. I, I got uh, lost in thought for a minute. Okay. That we could blame on the sativa. But in, 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 in general, in general, in general, I struggle with that on a day to day basis. Um, I love conversations, but I do have moments where I uh, where I get lost. <laughs> Can we roll that one back uh, two minutes? What, what were you saying? It's all right, man. That must be some good sativa. Tell you that much. That must be some good sativa. I got you lost in thought. Um, no complaints. I thought it was just my eyeshadow, but it's uh, um, it's apparently sativa. Yeah, uh, no, I, I was saying that you were talking about how, I, I mean, it just sounds like people who sit in authority, whether the, it's the Israeli government or you're talking about the uh, Palestinian authority or uh, Hamas is a very different conversation. But I was under somehow under the impression that at least the Palestinian Authority would want to create some kind of dialogue or some kind of conversation where it's like, hey, how do we find a place to peace? But it sounds like even the activists on the Palestinian side are uh, afraid for their lives because just like you said, there is an anti-normalization. So anyone who talks about peace or wants to bring forth that narrative is thrown in jail. So what happens to these folks that they get thrown in jail? Like, do they get killed? Like what happens? So it, it, you know, it's, it, first of all, it's just super demoralizing, right? You know, it, um, we, we need more activists on both sides. And we, when we see courageous Palestinians yeah. rise up and then get punished, and then they're not likely to return to their activism. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, you know, that that's demoralizing for anybody who's, who's you know, in, involved in, in the peace process. Um, the, what happens to Palestinians um, in the West Bank who are under the Palestinian Authority They'll get interrogated. Um, sometimes they'll get locked up for for a few weeks. Uh, one of the one of the guys that was at our meetup tonight, he was uh, locked up for two weeks from the Palestinian Authority for being in contact with Israelis. If you're a Gazan, then the stakes are much are, are much higher. So uh, uh, Gaza is under Hamas's control, and I, I have a friend from Gaza. His name is Rami Aman. He was. Uh, He's a very courageous activist who's 
you know, was constantly in dialogue with Israelis. He was on my podcast at a point, and around six months ago, he was arrested by Hamas, and he was sentenced to three years in prison. He was sentenced to three years in prison for having conversations with Israelis. I mean, it, I mean that's that's heart shattering in in so many ways for his life, and. For, for just understanding that he's not going to get out of jail and continue this work. He's not going to get out of jail and continue to convince that his is Palestinian. Even, right? That is, if he, even if he makes that out alive, are they going to leave, may leave him alive even? Yeah, uh, so I, I don't know much about the, the Gazan prison system, but I'm, I'm under the impression that, he, impression that he's, he's going to come out alive. I, I don't think they're... I, I don't think he's going to get executed. I also there's uh, some amount of international pressure that has been pressuring Hamas for his release. I have been asked not to speak about this publicly. Well, here I am speaking about it publicly, but at least not to my network mm-hmm. because um, it it was thought that if Israelis are coming out and speaking up for Rami's release to mm-hmm. gain international pressure, it would look bad that Israelis are coming out in support for him. So here I have a friend who, you know, I have spoken to him in public, right? We've been part of this peace building process is now locked up and I need to just deal with it silently. I can't yell and make noise and tell the world what is happening. And it hurts, you know, it's, it's not easy. Um, My heart breaks for him and his loved ones. And, you know, even when he gets out, I'm not sure if I'll ever will ever speak another word in our entire lives because of the threat. Now, I, I don't want to be pessimistic. I think I, I'd like to think that within my lifetime, we could have peace and and Rami and I could travel. I could tr- he, visit his home and he could visit my home and we could yeah. go to the beach together and eat at a restaurant together. Right. That That's the dream. That's what we're working towards. Yeah. Um, but there's no guarantee that that's what's going to happen. That's what we need to be working towards. Yeah, absolutely. So that is happening more. So so let's say uh, Ramin gets uh, released from uh, Gaza, from the Gaza prison. And if he decides to get up and uproot himself and go live in, uh, in the West Bank, A, can he and B, would Hamas still have access to him to try to pull him back or to bring him back? Like, how, how does that work? Um, they can't. They can't pull him back, but they don't need to let him leave, right? So it's 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 up to him and Israel if he's allowed to leave. Um, it's it's very very difficult situation for the people in Gaza. They they need permission from Hamas to leave, and they need permission from Israel to leave. And you know that mo- most Gazans have never left Gaza. It's it's a quite horrible situation. Uh, there is actually also a border with Egypt um, that you don't hear about. You know Israel's often made to seem as the, the worst, you know, the worst country in the world. And, and many Israelis take this as a form of um, anti-Semitism and just unfair treatment. But there, there's a border between Gaza and Egypt, and that border is even stricter, supposedly, than the one with, uh, with, with Israel. I mean, th- that's besides the point, but the idea is life in Gaza is quite terrible. If, if Rami makes it to the to, to the West Bank, and he's under um, control of the Palestinian Authority. Hamas doesn't have the means to take him back. Um, mm. That being said, Hamas is, in a sense, not Hamas, the Palestinian Authority is, in a sense, 
uh, a puppet dictatorship currently in in the West Bank. There haven't been elections, I believe, in 12, 13 years in the West Bank. Abu Mazen, uh, a.k.a. Mahmoud Abbas, has been in power all that time. There are no elections. Polling does show that if there were elections, Hamas would win. Um, Israel is keeping, is helping keep, keep the Palestinian Authority in power. That They kind of control the Palestinian Authority. They give them funds. Um, and, and they, with their military, with their military able to make sure Hamas doesn't gain a military presence in the West Bank. So essentially Israel's, Israel's keeping the Palestinian Authority um, up, you know, in power in the West Bank because the alternative they view as much worse and the status quo is for all too many people and many people in power because their power is a result of the status quo. They're comfortable enough with the status quo. And, you know, it's, you know, keeping the Palestinian authority in power, even though they have not been a partner for peace, seems to be the best solution to all too many people um, in positions of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like other alternatives are being um, are being approached. So. Right. That's worth mentioning. Um, uh, I have a question here from uh, uh, my regular watcher, James. He says, question for Adar. He said, there is speculation that if Trump loses the election, that Israel will go ahead and annex the West Bank because they know that Biden would never agree. Your thoughts. So first, I guess, let me give my my opinion on the U.S. election. I know this people are going to be upset by this, but I have a feeling Trump's going to win and and I think it could even be a landslide. Um, I'm just putting that, that out there. I, I have been wrong in the past, but that's that's what I'm feeling. Yeah. Um, if he does lose, though, mm-hmm. would Israel then annex? I mean, that's a tough one. I I don't think so. I'm not even convinced that there was ever a, a real plan for annexation. Many would disagree with me on this, but I'm not convinced. I think the annexation was used as a way for Benjamin Netanyahu to maintain power. He needed a larger piece of the right wing vote. Uh, Netanyahu is considered to most people a right winger, but there are a few parties to the right of Benjamin Netanyahu, and he often appeals to them right before elections. And plans Mm -hmm. of annexation is a great way to appeal to those people. He he then so he he used the threat of he used annexation as a way to help get reelected. And then he used it as, in a sense, a bargaining chip to make peace with UAE. I don't think, and, and that being said, I don't think UAE really cares about annexation. They just needed a way to agree to peace with Israel and make it seem like it wasn't for nothing. So it was kind of like a clever move. It's like, let's pretend we're going to annex. And then the UAE can use that as the reason why they agreed to peace because we took that off the table. That's kind of what I think happened there. I don't think annexation will happen, but this is just an educated guess. You know, I, I really don't know. Okay. That's all right. I hope that answers your question, James. Um, I, um, you know, uh, I, I've never, I've never been to Palestine or uh, Israel. I would love to uh, one day, God willing, how easy is it to travel from Israel to West Bank and vice versa. I'm not even going to touch Gaza because that's a Hamas control. Yeah, Ga- Ga- Gaza is a challenging one. If yeah. you are 
for an Israeli, I can drive. So the West Bank is split up into three areas, area A, B, and C. Area A is under full Palestinian authority control. Area B is dual control between Israel and Palestine, and C is under Israeli control. So we can travel freely into A and B, I believe, without without checkpoints on the way out. There is a checkpoint upon them seeing that you're Israeli. They'll let you in fairly, fairly easily. Area A, Israelis are not allowed to enter by law. This is a this is law that is put forth by the Israeli army, but by the Israeli government um, because of just the threat of of going in there. It's it's an area that. Uh, Israel's military is not present in a way that can keep um, people safe. So it's off limits for Israelis. For Palestinians to travel into Israel proper, which is, you know, let's consider everything after the, you know, there's the West Bank in Israel proper, which is the 1967 border. So for Palestinians to move from the West Bank into Israel proper, uh, depending on where they are, they're going to have one, two, three checkpoints just to get there, and um, they will need some kind of uh, permission in order to to enter. They, they they need a permit to enter. They sometimes get twenty four hour permits. Um, some you could sometimes get a week permit. There's ways to get permits, but that's what it's needed for Palestinians to go into to Israel. To Israel, it's much much easier. Um, for Israelis to, to go into Palestinian territories for outsiders. So um, if, I'm visiting, if I'm visiting and I'm yeah. like, uh, first I land in, uh, is in Tel Aviv. And then I'm like, Oh, I want to go visit West bank. Like that. How like difficult is that process? Yeah. So I think it's fairly easy for most outsiders. So m- most outsiders c- can arrive to Israel. No problem. Um, they could enter, and then from there, they can they can enter the West Bank. They don't need a special permit. They can enter. They could actually also air, enter Area A. Okay. Yeah. So so I'd say you can come and visit all parts of the land. There have been in recent years, and this is a quite shitty policy. You know, Israel st- started banning people from entering the country if they support BDS or, or other pro-Palestine organizations, which is just it's such a sign of weakness and that. And that you don't feel comfortable enough with, with that. That's at least how I view it. It's like you know, you you shouldn't feel like some activist who doesn't think you should exist is a big enough threat that you need to bar them from entering. Um, I, there's probably only been a handful of people who have been barred the, the past few years, but there isn't a, a policy like that, which you know, it's it's uh, Netanyahu government policy that's quite stupid in my opinion doesn't serve much purpose, doesn't in any way help. I mean, if anything, letting people who dislike Israel come to Israel just for them to get to, to Palestine, you know, that's getting to know Israelis, seeing them as human beings for potentially the first time, seeing that we're, we're not these murderers, you know, how we're pi- often pictured in the media. So, you know, it seems like letting activists in, regardless of what they think about us, can only help. Right, right. I, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I I feel like, uh, you know, these, these conversations that, so uh, Adar, do you, uh, as a, a, a peace activist 
in Israel, do you feel any kind of threat or is that something from the Israeli government where they might come after you or say, you can't say that, or we're going to jail you? Is that, do you have a similar kind of a threat, uh, you know, for you versus what uh, the Palestinian, uh, a Palestinian activist would experience? No, uh, no, no, there's no, there's no threat like that. There's no, um, legal repercussions. There's only just minor social repercussions, possibly amongst more uh, radical Israeli population. They may view me maybe as a traitor, but I'd say that's a very small, small minority of Israelis. Most Israelis, you know, when they hear what I do, some are like, yeah, that's cool. Others think it's just, you know, naive trying to make any difference. It's, it's, it's too much of a challenge for any individual to make a difference. That's how it's constantly viewed. But there's no threat. Got it. Got it. But on the, on the Palestinian side, uh, forget about what's happened, what Hamas is doing in Gaza. But on the Palestinian, it's, it's, it's interesting to me how, um, just like you said, that the Israeli government uh, wants to keep uh, Mahmoud Abbas in, you know, in, in power, mainly because the alternative is a really bad idea. But the Palestinian Authority somehow uh, has these laws where they're punishing uh, or at least uh, trying to, uh, you know, Palestinian activists who want peace. So uh, uh, does, does Israel not have any influence uh, on Palestinian Authority when it comes to that kind of sort of thing? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I don't know if, if the Israeli government cared enough, can they stop it? Can they leverage, you know, find leverage to stop it? But potentially, I, I don't think they're trying. I don't think they care enough. I don't I don't think they think that Palestinian activists are going to make a difference. The status quo is is comfortable. Um, you know, many Israelis in power are equally pessimistic to the general population. It's not like the people in power have these grandiose ideas for how to solve the conflict they for them it's just about kicking the can down the road maintaining the the status quo and staying in power you know once you're in power you don't want to let it go and and you're and again this isn't universally true right there are people in power who are genuinely well-intentioned um but i I think often when you're in power you you begin to see things differently and and you start to focus more on what will keep you in power not what will make uh, your people live better lives. And I think that's a struggle we see in governance, uh, you know, across the board in all nations. Right. Absolutely. What, um, you know, you, first of all, how long ago did you start this, um, your activism work and what even got you into it? So I had an interesting evolution story. I, you know, being raised with, with those Zionist teachings um, mm. after, you know, in New York, right? In New Jersey, yeah. Growing up in New Jersey. Um, since I was a little boy, you know, my dad, who's Israeli, who served in the army, his brother served, his father served. He, he meant, you know, he said, when you grow up, you'll go to the army. You know, I, it was exciting, this idea that I'll go serve my country, protect my people. And uh, when I was, uh, and, and I still never made a conclusive decision, but in high school, I was quite a big troublemaker. And, uh, the army just seemed like the perfect escape from a crazy lifestyle. I was living uh, as a high schooler, just a way to, to strengthen up and also serve my people. So I, I moved to Israel when I was 18 and I joined the IDF, the Israeli defense force. And my views were vastly different than what they are right now. I knew 
the, the narrative I earlier explained. I, you know, we are here to protect. We, we are here trying to live in peace and they want to kill us and we just need to protect ourselves against them. That, that's what I knew. I wasn't taught to hate Palestinians, not, not by any means. Mm-hmm. I was just taught that if we don't defend ourselves, they will kill us. And interestingly enough, in the army is when I had a realization that that started changing my views over time. I was guarding on base. And, you know, people often think of soldiers as like Rambo. Most Israeli soldiers are between the ages of 18 and 21. Kids who want to be as far away from military base as possible. They're just trying to pass their three years so they could travel and, and you know, be free. Um, Smoke some sativa. Yeah, yeah. And there's a fair amount of soldiers that do. They, they there's a fair amount of soldiers that do, but most of them wait till after the army, yeah. take some trip around the world, and that's when they start experimenting with all the fun stuff. Uh, that's generally how it goes. Yeah. So I, I was guarding on base, and I was bored, and there was a poster on the wall that showed Hamas training techniques, and there was a Hamas soldier crawling through sand. And I was crawling through sand that same day, and I, and I looked at that soldier, and I, I saw myself. I saw myself in my sworn enemy. I, I started asking myself, I said, if I was born in Gaza, would that be me? Could that be a loved one? Does his family view him as a hero and me as a terrorist? Mm-hmm. Can that be? Mm-hmm. Now, these views didn't change my, these thoughts didn't change my views overnight. I mean, deep-rooted ideologies take, can take many years to change, but this certainly planted a seed in my mind. And that seed over years, you know, grew into what I consider a, a garden of, of compassion and understanding and, and humanization. And it was, I got released from the army in 2011. And, you know, I had a few years for my thoughts on the conflict to evolve. And then there was the Gaza war in, in 2014, where Israel went into Gaza. Um, yeah. lot, lots of Gazans were killed around a thousand over a hundred Israelis were killed. Some who I knew I've, I've lost already a few friends either to, uh, in the military or to terror attacks. And most Israelis have, and it's a small country. So, you know, every time someone's dead, you could, someone gets killed by a terror attack. You could look them up on Facebook and you see all your mutual friends with them. It's very rare that somebody dies and I don't have a mutual friend with that person. And same, same goes for the Palestinians. Virtually all Palestinians know someone who's been, killed by this conflict um, and war broke out and I saw two narratives online, two very distinct narratives, Israel under attack, Israel under attack. And then the other narrative was Gaza under attack, Gaza under attack. Mm-hmm. And it, it was wild. I, you know, nobody was saying Israel and Gaza under attack. No one was recognizing that you have two populations who are currently fighting, but both are suffering. Both are in pain. It was one against the other, one or the other. And, you know, I said, so, something needs to change. Um, you know, we can't, we can't continue like this. Something needs to change. And I just started writing Facebook statuses. That's really how it started. I just started writing statuses on Facebook about the humanization yeah. of the other and how we should look at this as all of us together suffering and not one against the other. And, you know, that just grew to different different initiatives. I started getting involved with different NGOs and helping promote them. 
you know, b- before I got into activism, I was actually a, night, a club promoter for, for years in Tel Aviv. I used to manage teams of promoters. We would bring all the internationals, being an international myself, we'd bring them to all the clubs and have great parties. Um, I, it's, it's somewhat related because I, through the work I did as a club promoter, I actually realized how I could use my social media to promote parties. I'm like, if I could use it to promote parties, can I promote other things? Can I promote ideas? So that's, I started utilizing, um, utilizing social media to, to promote part, um, peace as well as parties. Um, and that kind of grew into all sorts of stuff. And then I finally launched my YouTube channel and the podcast and, I've done some other cool videos, been involved with some interesting initiatives. So yeah. Yeah, I've been doing that for the better part of six years now. Wow. That's, uh, I, I mean, uh, that's a, that is a, um, uh, you know, I'm listening to your story and it sounds like a story of enlightenment. Uh, it sounds like a story of um, you having a spiritual journey uh, and answering questions for yourself, which I feel um, a lot of people shy away from because it's a difficult journey and it's a lonely journey, right? You're probably alone in those thoughts when you're like going through it and you're just like, oh my God, I am surrounded by people who probably not going to like what I have to say, but I'm going to find the courage to talk about this and hope that they will accept uh, what is it that I'm saying, or at least hear me out for what I have to say. And uh, I mean, first of all, kudos and uh, kudos to you uh, for, um, I mean, even standing up and speaking out um, and, you know, having this level of compassion, uh, not just for your own people, but for the the people who are sitting across the aisle and also are in pain, just like uh, the people on your side. Um I mean, it's it's very rare that you, you know, come across people like that. So what I mean, you were talking about uh, you had a meeting uh, today with these um, uh, uh, Palestinian peace activists. So is, did that meeting take place in West Bank? Is that where that meeting took place? Yeah. Yeah, that was in the West Bank. And just to make you know a quick comment on what you said, you know, yeah, I do consider it an, an enlightenment. And I think that you know, a fundamental truth I, I like to live by. And there, there are fundamental truths I, I live by. I've, I've worked hard to really unravel most ideologies I have um, and try to truly accept ignorance and work from that place, work from trying to reconstruct ideas based off yeah. assuming I don't know anything. Yes. Um, but rationality can only take you so far, right? You need some value to follow. Mm. Rationality, you could look at it as the steering wheel, values are the compass. So, you know, the, the value of just viewing all life as inherently equal and, um, Sacred. and, and worth maintaining, sure. um, understanding that compassion is just essential part of elevating human well-being here on planet earth and taking that one step further. It's not just about humans. It's about the animals as well. It's about the ecosystem. You know, we, uh, part of the immense privilege we have, to be humans with such immense capacities that so vastly different from all other animals and to be alive in the 21st century where we have so much technology and, and so much privilege compared to, you know, virtually anybody who came before us, that that's, you know, we're in a place where there's no reason why we can't protect all other life forms, not only all other beings. So that's, that's the, the value that I kind of, approach my activism from 
for? No, I mean, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a beautiful place. It's a very enlightened place. Like I said, it's a, I, I think it's really beautiful. Uh, you know, I, um, uh, when I moved from Pakistan at the age of 15, um, I went through about 10 years of uh, identity crisis. Um, and the reason I went through identity crisis is because I didn't really know where I belonged. I didn't know if I was American or if I am Pakistani or uh, am I, uh, how Muslim am I? Uh, I think all of those things kind of really, uh, and I, I feel like it's only when I took that, um, you know, I, it's only when I took that spiritual path that individual, very difficult spiritual path have I been able to come out on the other side and kind of have my own enlightenment to understand of, you know, where what it, my spirituality is about and what my enlightenment is about. So when I meet fellow enlightened people like yourself, I, I appreciate them a lot because I understand how difficult that. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Uh, individual spirituality path is, and it's, it's, a, it's a hard one. And of course, then uh, you're coming out party and understanding like oh my god people are they gonna even embrace what i have to say uh and uh, thank god uh, um i get i get i get uh, i get shit thrown at me uh from fellow muslims uh you know but i get shit thrown at me from conservative christians too so there's also that um what is uh the future of israel and palestine Hadar? Uh, you know i'd say no one knows but we have the power to influence what that future looks like. Mm-hmm. I alone cannot bring peace to this land. No individual alone can bring peace to this land. Yeah. But collectively, if people rise up and start to work together, and this, you know, this will take great courage from both people, but primarily the Palestinians who will need to rise up. And, and, and the way to stop Palestinians from being arrested is for them to rise up in, in masses and in numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and begin, you know, a mass approach at reconciliation and and humanization. And I think, you know, that's what every individual can do and, and start electing uh, um, for electing leaders who share this vision and these values. And, you know, that's what I think every individual can do to 
to impact change, not only in Israel and Palestine, but in every conflict in the world. Sure. Um, it's essential to remember that you have the ability to inspire change and, you know, take that opportunity, make, make this, this chance at life that we were given and make it truly amazing by not only fulfilling your aspirations, but trying to get a win for humanity while you're at it. Right. And Mona, you know, I see you as part of this process. You're doing excellent work and, you know, I appreciate oh, you're what so you're doing. You're very sweet, Adar. Thank you. I try to, you know, I try to, uh, I think my biggest fear uh, about having you on as a guest was to not, uh, uh, you know, not to overstep or not to say something insensitive because it is a very sensitive topic to a lot of people. Uh, and, you know, just trying to educate myself and have as much uh, arsenal in, uh, you know, to arsenal in a good way of information uh, to uh, not basically come across like a dumbass is what I would <laughs> My well, I think you did a great job. But thank you very much. I, uh, I'm trying. I, I am so uh, motivated uh, to come to Israel and Palestine now. I, I honestly have always kind of shied away, mainly because of all the stuff you hear in the news. But I'm listening to you and getting this uh, really fantastic um, perception that I did not know existed, which is why I'm, I'm so grateful to have come across you and, and now have you on as a guest. Um do you feel, uh, you know, the the people on both sides, on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, you said, you know, uh, the majority of the people are kind of sticking to this. I feel like they're sticking to the painful narrative, right? It's the it's the narrative of pain. It's like that person's my enemy. Keep them away. I don't want anything to do with them. Let's just put up the wall. Stay away from me. If you try to hurt me, I'm going to shoot you, right? Um what helps people, what makes people step outside their pain and say, how do we objectively look at this? How do we come to the table and have a conversation of some kind of compromise where it, this is not about us, but this is about the future of our children? Psychedelics. I'm about that life, man. I haven't done them. Look, I mean, that's an easy answer, right? Um. So I, I said like, it isn't easy. I'm just like, how do you do that? That's so complex. Oh, you got on mute there, Adar. Can you there. hear me? Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, my mic got unplugged. Yeah, I mean, you asked him. Sorry, before you answer that, uh, uh, one of our viewers, Aziza, said, Thank you, Adar. I learned quite a bit of your perspective. Uh, and she also said, yes, and God will help eventually. I pray to God that is the case. Yes. Thank you, Aziz. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful you're here with us. So, you know, you, you asked a very challenging question. I gave an easy answer, which is not a one size fits all. I, I mentioned psychedelics because, you know, you asked the question of how do we step out of our pain and see a different perspective. And, and it, psychedelics is one of the single best ways to do that. That being said, it's not for everybody. Sure. It's still illegal. So I don't want to tell everybody to go start doing them, but consider okay. taking psychedelics. I, I would say do your own research, but be open to the idea that you can benefit from taking psychedelics. I did. Part of my evolution was taking psychedelics. Oh, without, I, really? without a doubt. Okay. That being said, you know, let's look at other holistic approaches because we're, we're talking about being able to step, you know, have that, um, 
form of enlightenment that we discussed earlier? How do we get more people to be enlightened and take a step away from the pain and their conflict and, and view things more rationally and more compassionately? Yeah. Um, so I'd say any amount of healing work. I think this could be group sessions between Israelis and Palestinians. It could be little meetups where they come together and talk. There's an organization I, I've been involved with called Minds of Peace. They bring Israelis and Palestinians together to do public negotiations out in the public. Wow. Um, and, you know, I said we need mass amounts of Palestinians to rise up. So when the organization just began, they saw that bringing one bus filled the, with Palestinians was difficult because the Palestinians feared being targeted. But then once we scaled and brought 10 buses, it was much easier because they felt security in numbers. Um, and we've had the biggest one we did was here at Rabin Square, named after Itzhak Rabin, the prime minister who was assassinated because it, that's where he was assassinated. We brought 800 Palestinians and 800 Israelis together to sit at, at multiple tables and negotiate the peace process. That's one of the single best ways to take you out of your narrative and begin the humanization process. Wow. Adar, can we just talk about that for a How was that? Like, when was this? How was it? And what was the kind of result from it? So, I mean, extremely powerful. Yes. It was extremely powerful. Um, You know, it's inspiring. It it makes you feel hopeful. Many Israelis have never met a a Palestinian. Israelis meet many uh, Israeli Arabs. Some of them identify as Palestinian. I mean, keep in mind, there are 20% of Israel's population are Arabs with with Israeli citizenship. But they're not... Palestinian. What? What? The, 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 there, there's actually no, no difference. It's it's in 48. Some Palestinians were uh, either left their home or were kicked out of their home by Israelis. Some were allowed to stay. The ones who were allowed to stay became Israeli Arabs and have full rights under the law as Israelis. Sure, there's some amount of racism and discrimination, but full rights under the law and many communities of uh, Israel, uh, Jewish Israelis and Muslim Israelis living together in peace and harmony. Israel is also a very diverse place, way more diverse than people think. We, we could talk more about that, that if you'd like. But um, so, so the, the, you know, it's not uncommon for Israelis to know Arabs and, and live amongst Arabs, but Palestinians who identify as Palestinians, most Israelis have never met a Palestinian or have a Palestinian friend. Most Palestinians have no Israeli friends. The only Israelis they will meet our um, soldiers or settlers. Yeah. And most of the time, neither neither soldiers or settlers treat Palestinians with dignity and respect. So, th- you know, their, their view on Israelis is not that we're nice people. Yeah. Many Israelis view Palestinians as, as violent and wanting to kill us. And then you seat them in front of each other for the first time. And they get to know each other as human beings. That can break down years of education, preconceived notions of, of one another wow. in a single day. So that is an extremely uh, powerful experience. And I think it's one of the single best ways to progress the peace process. It's just not so easy, especially now with COVID, you know, entries uh, for Palestinians into Israel are, you know, have been closed off. Uh, so much, much of this work has has stopped, but 
it is it, it is an initiative that exists. It's not common enough. It needs to be brought into our schools from a young age. Young Israelis need to meet young Palestinians. They need it. We need to have, I don't know, sports that we play together, um, trips that we take together. Right. There, there needs to be more communication from a young age. But it, it's it's happening. And, you know, we just need more of this. We, we need more of this work. Yeah, absolutely. So you you guys had this massive uh, gathering so that the, the Palestinian didn't try to come after the people who came in and had this conversation, you know, were, who were attending this, like the Palestinian Authority didn't come after them? No, no. We we, we got 800 permits uh, given by the Israeli army. They're the ones who grant the permits. Um, it was, which is a, a, a huge deal. Getting 800 permits is not easy. Sure. And, you know, it's possible some of the Palestinians got some flack from their neighbors. Sure. Um, but when you have that amount coming out, what, you know, the Palestinian authority is not going to now start interrogating 800 people. It's, it's, it's too big a number. Um, so they, they kind of let it slide. That's, that's what seems to, to have happened. And this was how many years ago? So the big one was, um, 2017, I believe. 2016, maybe 2017, but since then there's been um, one every two months. Not not that size. They're normally smaller, 20 people, 50 people, sometimes 100 people. Sometimes we do youth panels, um, and sometimes we do all women panels. And interestingly, the youth panels and the women panels often do a better job at reaching uh, solutions than than the all man panels or the or the mixed panels. That's how we roll, Adar. That's how the ladies throw it down. Well, well, you know, I, I don't like to talk much about group differences just because it opens uh, doors to, to prejudice. But, you know, w- women um, on average, and it's important to say on average because we do need to view the individual, but women on average are higher in empathy. And when you're higher in empathy, then, you know, you're going to reach reach conclusions quicker. So I, I'd say there's a, a clear explanation to, to why that exists. And uh, which brings me to the next point, which I've been wanting to actually ask you, is uh, has Israel ever had a female prime minister? Yeah, we had a female prime minister, Golda Meir, in the 70s, believe it or not. So, Wow, wow. Yeah, we, yeah, we haven't had one since. We've had a Tsipi Livni who uh, was close. She, she came fairly close around 12 years ago. Yeah. I mean, Israel, you know, in many ways is... The, I mean, it's definitely leading the the region as a progressive nation. We have multiple pride parades every year. We have a huge pride parade in Tel Aviv every June. Yeah. This year was canceled, but sure. huge pride parades. Um, we have many women in in high positions of power, yeah. um, and, we, and and many Arab Israelis also in positions of power and in the military and judges. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that's the good, but there's an ugly side to it. You know, there's definitely still. Uh, prevalent misogyny, you know, rape culture is very much, uh, you know, alive and well in Israel. Um, really? Uh, yeah, I mean, ra- rape culture, you know, that's similar to the rape culture that we see in America, where, you know, victim blaming, slut shaming, demeaning behavior towards women if they're sexually open, calling them sluts, you know, that all, all those. That's a global thing, Adar. That's just a global. Uh, yeah. Undying phenomenon. Uh, I mean, yeah. So we we have that here, you know, and and 
you know, P- Palestinian culture, I'd say, is a fair amount, you know, less progressive on social issues currently. Um, part of that could also be a result of the conflict. We have seen that, you know, people in conflict become radicalized. But, you know, it's if, if you compare Israel to most other countries in the Middle East, we're a fair amount um, more progressive when it comes to social issues. But as we mentioned, rape culture alive and well, racism towards Arabs and our Ethiopian Jewish population alive and well, right? There's a, there's still, I'm not going to sit here and make it seem like we're, we're, where we need to be when it comes to social issues. No, we, we've done great um, in a historical context and on a global average, I think we're doing great. Yeah. But as an Israeli who wants to make this land better, we still have a lot, a lot of work to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, was Goldemeyer conservative or liberal? What what kind of party did she kind of belong to? I she she was right leaning. She was considered right leaning. Um, I don't know too much about her policies, but she's she's held in high regard in in Israeli society. She's 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 very very well respected. Yeah, and uh, I I believe on the. Palestinian side, there has never been female leadership. Am I am I am I right about that? Yeah, no, no, th- there hasn't been. Um, not not even close. I would say. Mm. That being said, you know, in these public negotiations, we do have a fair amount of Palestinian women coming out, um, and many many younger women, uh, you know, under the age of eighteen, high high school girls oh. coming out to these negotiations, oh. and. And I mean, that's so inspiring because they they don't come and sit passively. No, they're they, they are assertive. They take a stand. They are loud. They make their voices heard. And the first time I saw that, I was surprised because, you know, there is repression of women um, in Palestinian culture and in most Middle Eastern cultures. It's fair to say that yeah. there's a lot of work to do when it comes to how women are treated. It, it, again, I'd say Israel is in the lead by a fair amount, but Middle Eastern culture, by and large, there's a lot of repression of women. So I was actually shocked to see, you know, the, the a, the amount of women and how vocal they were and confident in their voices. Um, a, it showed me, you know, a, a side of, of Palestinian culture and Palestinian women that I've never seen. And also got me to question that, you know, I guess to some extent there, there, it's not that all Palestinian women are repressed and don't have a voice. No, you know, that, that voice exists didn't begin at that table, right? These are women who came in with the confidence to speak and, and, and believe in how they feel. So, you know, that was a sign that there are, uh, you know, many empowered women, Palestinian women. Um, and, and one of the, the, the biggest peace organizations in Israel is called women wage peace. I'd say it actually is probably the biggest, biggest peace organization. If you look at it in terms of numbers, women wage peace is, is number one. And they have a great slogan. They say, um, left, right, and center, unite for peace. So they, they're making it apolitical. They're saying it's not about, this isn't left-wing, right-wing. Yeah. This is humans. This is Israeli women taking a stand, saying we need to solve this conflict. It's beautiful. That's, I mean, it's so, it's, so, it's so powerful. Like, I'm just, like, listening to you, and I'm just trying to picture, like, 800 people from both sides, like, seeing each other for the first time on, at a table and having a face-to-face conversation. So how long did this last? Was this like a whole day event? Like what was the event like? Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the negotiations are normally a, a full day. Um, it's, it's 
kind of hard to get people back into action after lunch. Lunch kind of kills the momentum. Yeah, yeah. But you need, it's like a challenge we, we find with the negotiations. We, we plan lunch for like 2 p.m. Who's paying for the lunch, Adar? It's the NGO. They're called Minds of Peace. So I'll look them up. They have a Facebook page, uh, um, okay. I think a YouTube page, a website. Minds yeah. of Peace, awesome organization. Amazing. Um, but it's it's a good six hours of sitting there, and it's structured too, right? Uh, different tables are approaching different aspects of the of the conflict. Some are talking about borders. Some are talking about prisoners. Some are talking about right of return, Jerusalem reconciliation, um, ending violence, mutual recognition. Right. So there's there's different aspects of the peace building process. Different tables are meant to address different issues. And then they kind of work on building a consensus together. There's so much to address. You never get to it in one sitting. But what we've seen is that Israelis and Palestinians, when they come together, make peace better than what are than our politicians. So yeah, you know, that really says something. But, you know, Dara, it, uh, it, go- it goes back to the point that you were making, which is it's the people that have to want it. Right. It's the people that have to want it. And then they go on and say, hey, you know what? This leader that I have right now is not working because they don't reflect my ideology, right? And the fact that you're saying that you have people uh, from the Palestinian side who are like kids who are under the age of 18 and sitting at the table and having these confident voices and voicing their opinions and saying, hey, we want peace. Like, how do we make this happen? This is how the uh, progressive ideology or any ideology for that matter spreads, which is it, it's on such a grassroots level, right? It's the kids who are just like, look, this is not cool. Like in America, I'm sure you know this, we have a whole woke culture, right? It's the young people that are taking matters into their hands and saying, look, it's not cool um, to bash women. It's not cool to bash LGBTQ communities. It's just not cool. Like you can't say shit like, oh, boys will be boys. Well, that shit is not accepted anymore. Fuck that. Like we're just not going to be a, a part of that culture. We're not going to uh, keep perpetuating that if we want to progress and be a better society. So I feel like, you know, when you tell me this kind of thing, is it, I feel like that's exactly what's happening in, in a more, um, you know, that kind of wokeness is happening there where the young people are like, we're, we want to have these conversations. Like we don't want to constantly be living in conflict. Uh, I mean, it, it, yeah. it's incredibly powerful. The kind of I, I, I'm like so inspired. I'm just like, man, there needs to be like NGOs, and I bet there are who are working both on the Pakistani and Indian side and saying, guys, we need to cut this crap out. Like, stop it. Like, we're the same people. Like, how do we have these kind of peaceful negotiations, these peaceful conversations? I, I mean, it's really powerful um, when I'm, I listen to you. Um, I know it's um, it's getting a, a little. Uh, it's already four o'clock in the morning, uh, actually now five, uh, five thirty in the morning for you. Uh, so we're going to start wrapping up. So Jar, um, uh, do you have your podcast that you do? Are these like daily episodes that you put out or weekly episodes? What's your thing? So I have a podcast called um, Standing Up and that's a pre-recorded session where I interview um, activists and influencers from around the world. Uh, Mona, you're actually going to be on the show. I believe we're doing that next week. So uh, look out for that episode. Um, I released that on my YouTube channel, which you could type in if you search a Dar Weinrib, which you can see my name right there on the screen somewhere over there. Yep, I see it. Um, and 
the name of the channel is called The Great Debate, but you're more likely to find it if you type in Adar Weinreb. You'll find the channel The Great Debate. That's where I upload the Standing Up podcast in addition to the Standing Up podcast, which is a video form as well, so you could watch it or listen to it. It's on Spotify, uh, Apple, all the, all the platforms. Then I have a, a show called The Great Debate, and that's a weekly live stream where I bring on people with differing opinions uh, together together. Uh, we, we try to find common ground. I call it a debate because if I called it a discussion, less people would watch it. But it's not a debate where sides are trying to defeat one another. It's a debate where people are working together to find common ground. And that's what makes it a great debate and not a regular debate. Yeah. So I do that every Thursday, 7 p.m. Israel time, which would be 9 a.m. PST. Uh, I go live today. Tonight I didn't because I had the, that meetup. But next next Thursday we're doing something special. So tune in for that. Yeah. Uh, and then sometimes I just l- upload other fun content. Uh, I'll sometimes talk on an issue and upload it. I don't know if maybe not fun is not the right word, but inspiring content, we call it thought, sure. thought for pro- provoking content. Yeah. And yeah, that's it. You know, that's, that's what I'm doing in the world of content. If anybody's watching this and wants to get in touch, uh, Mona, maybe, maybe my contact information is there. If not, maybe put in the description, you guys can reach out to me. Ready. It's I, there. I, so Facebook, Instagram, email, even reach out to me. I'm, I'm always happy to engage in, in dialogue, uh, ask me questions. I'm happy. I'm happy to respond. So. And it's all at Adar Weinreb, right? Yeah. Adar Weinreb across the board. You should be able to find me on all the platforms. Got it. Got it. Got it. Um, this has been a really, uh, very good for my soul this conversation today, Jar. It's really, really amazing. So thank you so much for uh, staying up late and having this conversation. It really means the world. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm super excited about being on your podcast next week. Yeah. Yeah. Mona, it's been a great pleasure. I, I appreciate what, you, what you're doing and I appreciate you having me on. And, you know, you mentioned you now want to come visit Israel and Palestine. Well, I'm, I'm giving you a personal invite. We did not, we, we spoke a lot about the conflict. We didn't, I didn't get to speak enough about how awesome this this country is, how much awesomeness there is here, why people are actually why are people fighting over it? Because it's yeah. fucking awesome. Yes. Um we could get into that, you know, in, in a different talk, but there's For so much people, this is not the last time you're coming on. You're gonna come back again. So and sure. the next time you come on, we're gonna talk about the awesomeness of Israel. Sure. You know, so they, this, is, this is not the last uh, invitation, Adar, by any means. You're going to be coming back on quite a few times. So uh, the, the the door is wide open for the invitation for you to come back anytime. So well, I'm definitely going to bring you back on and we're going to definitely delve into that. But I know it's uh, it's definitely getting late for you. So I, I'm not going to keep 6 you. 6 a.m. 6 a.m. Holy. Okay, please. You know what? Get some sleep, my friend. This was great. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Mona. Thank you. Take care. That was the wonderful and lovely Adar Weinrib. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I uh, learned so much. I uh, didn't uh, not so scared about the topic so much. If that's a, I don't know if that's a strange thing to say, but I, I, I definitely feel a lot more empowered listening to him and learned so much from both about both sides. So thank you so much for tuning in tomorrow, same time, six fifteen Pacific. I have a fantastic guest on by the name of Rachel Kona. Rachel is an amazing writer, entrepreneur, and blogger. She's a, she's a South Asian woman that does a lot of hilarious sex pieces. Yeah, she writes a lot of funny shit about sex. So I'm very excited to interview her tomorrow. 
Uh, if you haven't followed me on YouTube, please do subscribe to my channel. I have a lot of exclusive content there you can check out. Guys, have a good night. I will see you tomorrow. Please don't forget to follow my friend Adar on his Instagram at Adar Weinrib, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a good night. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.